Hi everyone, I'm Alice and you're listening to the theory of the postdoc evolution, the career podcast from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University Belfast. This is episode 20, which was recorded online in March 2022. It is a bit longer than usual as it contains two interviews in order to compare research in academia and in industry. You'll hear Dr. Simon Cameron, an academic at Queen's, talk to Dr. Edel Island, a senior lecturer in the School of Biological Sciences at Queen's, and also to Dr. Jocelyn Tilner, head of research and development in Bathhouse. So um, in today's career interview, we're going to talk to Edel and then Jocelyn, and we're going to talk to them individually and then come together at the end for sort of a shared Q&A session and maybe some of the pick up on some of the themes that, that come across from both of their uh, individual discussions. So we're going to start by talking to Um, Edal, who's a, a senior lecturer in, in biochemistry here in the School of Biological Sciences at, at Queen's University, Belfast, and has held several research positions outside of uh, the UK and the Republic of Ireland. So what we hope from today's discussion with Edal is to get an idea of what research is like overseas and in the States at, at Harvard and, and uh, John Hopkins that Edal was based at. Um, for some of you who maybe are interested in uh, an alternative career outside of the UK and Republic of Ireland system. And then we'll talk to Joc uh, Dr. Jocelyn Tilner, who's the Director of Research and Development at Bath Haas, and we'll learn a little bit about what that company does and how some of the skills and experiences she picked up in the PhD, how they relate to industry job. So with that, welcome Idal to this uh, podcast recording. Great to um, to have you with us this morning. I think if we start off with a not, maybe not a straightforward question, but going back to sort of what you consider your first memory of a career ambition was. Maybe it was a senior lecturer in biochemistry, but if it wasn't, what was the, the first idea that you had in terms of career? Yes, good morning. Thank you for inviting me here. Really happy to share my experience. And uh, no, it was not a senior lecturer in biochemistry uh, when I was younger. When I was younger, I really wanted to be a vet. And I guess maybe that's a little child thing. I just wanted to take care of animals. And, you know, I always tell people, I grow up, I'll be a vet. But it wasn't until I was about 15 or 14, I was studying chemistry in high school. And I got to do, I remember this vividly, the, the first titration experiment in the lab. And I, I went to a school where there weren't that many people interested in, in science. So I was, you know, in one way that was bad, but another way it was good because our classes were tiny. So there's only six of us doing chemistry at this, at for the, I did my leaving cert, so leaving cert level chemistry. And we all got really like lots of attention from the teacher. We got to do this titration. Anyway, I fell in love with science then, analytical science, doing the practical, you know, reading the books, the science is great, but when you actually get into the lab and do the experiment and see things in real life, I was hooked. And I was like, this is it. I want to be, I want to do chemistry. I, I thought I wanted to be a chemist. And What that meant in my mind was be a pharmacist. <laughs> so when I left school, I thought I don't want to be a pharmacist, but I didn't. I, in the end, I chose biochemistry to study an undergraduate. But yeah, so it's from about the age of 14, 15 that I, I just wanted to be in the lab. And, you know, 25 years later, I still love being in the lab. That's what I love most about what I do is being in the lab, running experiments, analyzing data. Yeah, absolutely. I think every opportunity I, I get to be in the lab, however inconvenient that might be to my students and, and postdocs, it, it's uh, the most joyous part of my job. Doing that. I would say my earliest career memory was being a member of the Thunderbirds, so I wouldn't say being a vet is a, a childish one at all. Uh, I realised I didn't come from a family of billionaires who had their own private islands, so that, that put a shutter to that idea quite quickly. So maybe before we move on to sort of your career history, if you could tell us a little bit about your job here as a senior lecturer in the School of Biological Sciences, what that involves day to day, but maybe sort of a broader picture of what your responsibilities involve outside of teaching and research. Yeah, so I started about six years ago. Uh, I got promoted to senior lecturer last year. Um, so my year is kind of set up in two halves. So the first half, I do all my teaching mainly in the first semester. So from September to January, I'm really education focused. I coordinate two modules at undergrad and postgraduate level, and I teach in all stages. I have about, you know, 70 hours face to face with, with students during that time. So it's, it's a lot. A lot of teaching from that first half of the year academic year and then from february onwards throughout the summer then i can focus more on my research so this is the time where i get to write grants you know supervise people in the lab think about papers that need to be written review review grants review papers all this stuff that scientists do um and so this is my favorite part of the year really <laughs> um outside of that i used to be swan champion i swan champion for the first five years i was here and that was a that was a big responsibility that's promoting women in science or promoted gender equality and and equality in general throughout science so i swan champion here and we, i led two successful gold applications that, 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 that took up a lot of my time here at queen's um i'm on various other committees now i think uh, there's a lot of administrative stuff to do also in our day-to-day -day life there's a lot of 
involved in running a lab, running a research group, uh, the safety, all of this comes onto our desks here. At Queen's, at least in our school, there's little support staff that's, you know, that help us with these kind of tasks. So as much as I would like to be spending most of my time writing grants and, and doing research and, and writing papers and interacting with students, there's a lot of other busy work that get, keeps me at my desk a lot of the days, which, you know, can sometimes be frustrating. Yeah, I, th I think I found that before starting that as a postdoc, you're involved in some of that. So maybe writing risk assessments, SOPs and everything, but the flip where everything is on your shoulders is I think something that's very invisible. And I think there's an argument that a good PI kind of hides that from other people. It should be uh, allowing people to get on with the, the research, but that flip with everything being on your shoulders is, is quite a, a steep learning curve. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. Okay. In terms of sort of the teaching, is that mainly undergraduate or does that involve quite a lot of project supervision? I always supervise a couple of master's students a year going through in the lab. Uh, I have one PhD student that's directly uh, in my lab right now, and I, I help supervise three other PhD students. Um, yeah, but the face-to-face -face teaching is mainly undergraduate. And I think that's something that we maybe forget when I was a postdoc, that you think you're very research focused, but if you're involved supervising students in the lab day to day, that, that counts as teaching. I remember when I was, yes. I, I came from Imperial, that was a very research focused institute. And uh, so my interview here, sort of teaching experience, I had sort of a mild panic thinking, well, I haven't stood in front of a lecture theatre for three years, so I, I haven't done any teaching. And then you think, well, actually, no, teaching master's students, PhD students, how to do stuff is, is teaching, maybe a different type, but... Yeah, and you, really don't, you don't understand the topic until you have to stand up in front of a lecture theatre with 300 <laughs> students and explain it. You really, I've learned a lot as a lecturer, yeah. Yeah, and actually, I've had quite a lot of research ideas come out of my... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of engagement with literature, so, yeah, no, it's a... We sometimes may be guilty of thinking teaching is a distraction, but it's it can help. more and more embedded in, in the research as well. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, one of the reasons I thought it'd be really great to talk to you is you spent quite a lot of time outside the UK and Republic of Ireland doing research. So you moved from your undergraduate at Trinity College to do your PhD at John Hopkins. So that was obviously quite a, um, I thought it was scary moving from Wales to, to London, moving from <laughs> Republic over to, to America. What was the sort of driving force behind your decision to do that? Yeah, so it's a little bit inaccurate. So when I left undergraduate, I was burnt out. I, was, I found it really challenging. I loved the final year project, but I, I, I didn't want to go into any structured learning, any kind of program. So I took a year out, basically. And I had spent this previous summer in America as a waitress, just you know, having some fun uh, summer during college. But I, I really wanted to go back. I really liked America. And so basically, I blanket emailed a whole load of labs in America and said, please take me on for a year work experience. I really want to work with my biochemistry degree in a lab in America and get some ex experience working in a lab and in America and have an adventure in America. And so I got, you know, my, my email reached tons and tons of universities and I got three positive replies. They were offered me positions, various sorts of positions. But the one that I chose was to go to Harvard Medical School in Boston. And I worked in a research group there in biochemistry of viruses. And, you know, Theoretically, I was supposed to go over there as a technician, but I actually got my own project when I got there and I, I was doing basic research and I was being paid minimum wage, but it was it was enough to get by and I loved it. I really, I've, I really, really enjoyed my time. I was only I had a visa for a year that got extended to a year and a half. And then I just decided over there that I was going to stay and apply for a PhD project, PhD position. So from Boston, then I applied for PhDs. I got a few and I ended up choosing the one in uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. So I moved from Boston to Baltimore. Oh, OK. So that's I, I, I know a few people who have had to sort of not fallen out of love with research, but have come to the end of an undergraduate and kind of maybe accidentally ended up in a, a research job in a lab as a, a technician. And that's really reinvigorated their, their love of the research that maybe with the stress of honest projects and everything you don't fully appreciate but no okay i didn't i wasn't aware of that but that's a, a great story to to come back into uh, to research so you stayed in the states to do a couple of postdoctoral so the phd in america is a lot longer people probably know so i took five and a half years to get my phd in hopkins and then i stayed on in the same lab for another year and a half just finishing up projects and papers getting papers out then i applied for postdoctoral positions and i got offered three and i chosen one back up at boston so i moved back up to harvard and i worked in the center for systems biology for five years doing a postdoc there and then yeah so that was i had a 13 year stint overall in america and then after that i moved back home came back oh wow okay so for some people who may be considering going from PhD to postdoc or from one postdoc to, to another, moving from the UK Republic of Ireland over to the States, what was your sort of the main differences in research culture 
Before I say that, I just want to say this is my experience of America, right? So I, I was in two places, Johns Hopkins and Harvard University and Harvard Medical School. They're very different, actually. One's in Boston, one's in Cambridge. So this might be unique in America. I don't know. I don't know how universal my experience is. But yeah, there's definitely a very different culture between here and over there from my experience. So in America, presente presenteeism is rampant. So everyone is always there. Lights are never off in labs. <laughs> you go there any time of the day or night, weekend, lights are on people are working. I was also there in my 20s, so I didn't have any responsibilities. I had no commitments. I was away from my family. I was all alone. So I really could dedicate my life to my work. And I did. And I loved it. And I, I don't regret that for a moment. But yes, it, uh, uh, as, a as a researcher and student over in America, my life was my job. And a lot of people's life is their job. But it was exhilarating. Like the, 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 the culture over there, there were so many opportunities to engage with your colleagues, to talk colleagues, to talk science. There were seminar series, journal clubs, there was happy hour on Fridays. There was a really good culture of, you know, coming together, talking science. When the new, new you know, every week when science or nature came out, we all knew what was got in it. You know, all these breakthroughs were discussed. It was like we were totally on top of what was happening in the scientific world. And it was it was fascinating. And, you know, the, the only limitation to your science and your research in places like Hopkins and Harvard is you. It's your capabilities, it's how much effort you want to put in. It's your creativity and experiments you want to do because all resources, everything is there. The world expert is there in the hall. You could go talk to them and ask them for input into your project. So it was fantastic, right? So that's one one really positive side of the culture and the immersiveness you are in in research when you're there. Flip side of that is it's highly competitive and, and that's maybe not surprising. And so things were pretty cutthroat and especially, most especially when I was in um, Harvard the second time as a postdoc, there's high expectations of Harvard postdocs. These are the people who have all the time to dedicate to research and you know everyone's always competing with each other for the next big discovery. In my lab there were six postdocs, we all had different projects, we all worked on high risk, high reward projects. If they worked we were going to get the next sales paper, you know, if it didn't work it didn't really matter to our PI because he had the other people, at least one or two of them would succeed. And so, yeah, there was definitely high pressure to perform and succeed and get really good sign, really good data. Uh, and as you probably all know, that's not always guaranteed, even, you know, you know, there's always some part of luck or some part of things you can't always um, think that are going to happen in experiments. You can't predict everything. And so it, it was it was very stressful in, in other ways. And just from a personal example, actually, a colleague of mine committed suicide, like to the vast extent, right? So, you know, it's an immersive, it's a stimulating, it's exhilarating, it's, it's fantastic, but then the pressure and the competitiveness is, is also. So, you know, what I've I heard that system described by the, I think, the previous president of the Royal Society, that it's a great system for science, but a horrible system for scientists. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a great, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. the way science is pushed forward so rapidly, yeah. but at the cost of sort of, of individuals. So how many of the people that you sort of worked with, were you the only one who went into a, an independent academic position or did most of them? Uh, the postdocs I worked with, uh, there were six of us and out of that three of them are now in their academic positions. One is an editor of Cell, a lead editor of Cell, and the other two work in Novartis in Boston, yeah. Oh, okay. So they've, they've gone on to, to, to great things as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe bringing it back onto onto the island, the transition from PI from postdoc side to, to PI is is always challenging, and I think something that we can never fully predict what it's going to be like. We've got an idea of it, and it's always larger the challenge than you you can ever imagine. What what did you find was sort of the the main challenge in securing your independent position for those who were looking at it going from postdoc here? To, to secure in a, a PI so position. If people are listening who are postdocs, it's a really stressful time. I understand that. I think, you know, a lot of the time spent as a postdoc is trying to find your next position because of this, you know, temporary nature of postdoc positions. It's really hard to plan life, to plan family, to plan mortgage, buying a house. Like it's, it's very, very difficult. And then the, the question is how, what are you going to do next? Yeah. And so I decided that I wanted to stay in academia. I started school at four, actually, and never, I've never left an academic institute. So that's, you know, maybe not a good thing. But um, um, so, yeah, I, 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 you have to be, you have to think, you have to plan. There are certain boxes you have to tick in order to get an academic position. And these will look favorably on your, on your you know, application. So definitely first and foremost science is the, is the science is your research is the publications it's good track record of showing that you can do science right and that's that's a given 
The second one that I think is most important is your ability to acquire funding, your ability, which really translate into your ability to make other people excited about your research. This is fundamentally you can't do research without money and you need to be able to demonstrate that. So even any kind of way you can demonstrate that as a postdoc or even as a student, travel awards, student fellowships, you know, postdoctoral fellowships, any anything you can apply for, that needs to be on your top of your list to try prove to an academic institution that you're able to excite people about what you do. If other people care about it, it's worthy of getting funding because that, that that's what we need to do. Um, I think people always think that maybe it means that you need to have secured half a million before your first sort of job as a PI, but but actually those smaller pots of money, it's I think the progression, the sort of curve that that you're on. If you if you go from securing a travel award for two hundred pounds, and then the next one's a sort of a thousand pounds, and the next one's a sort of a small research grant after that, that's showing that you're on the right track. So yeah. I think people thinking that it has to be huge, it has to, it doesn't have to be an individual fellowship to show that you've got that yes, uh, potential going forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, teaching experience obviously is always very important, but there are different academic institutes here at Queen's, you know, well, in this department, we are, we teach a lot. There are other departments at Queen's that don't have such much research uh, or a teaching load. Uh, but if you're applying for a position like I have, yeah, I needed to show a teaching experience and I, I had acquired that. And, you know, even as Simon said, you don't have to have stood up in front of a lecture theater. You could have, you know, supervised students, you could have helped in run labs or whatever. But just some demonstration that you're, you're, you know, you have an interest in education and you have some experience in it. And then I guess contribution to the scientific community. So what do I mean by that? So if you've run, uh, helped to run seminars or helped to run a, a, a course or uh, some kind of meeting in your field, that you're, you're aware of the responsibility that scientists have outside of an, of, of an institution. If you've helped to review papers or review grants, or probably wouldn't have reviewed grants at that point, but reviewed some papers, if you contribute to the scientific community outside of your own work, that's a, that's a good demonstration too. But, you know, and so that, they're, they're the kind of general, I think, things you need to tick off your list. But then when you're applying for a specific university, do research that university, really understand how your skill set will benefit them. What do you have to offer to someone? You know, after, so I didn't mention after Harvard, then I came back and I did a year of a, of a, of a computational bioinformatics postdoc in DCU. That was specifically for that reason, to be able to say, I can do bioinformatics. I can teach bioinformatics. I know how to do it. I spent the year coding. It was fantastic. And I really did that to bolster my CV in order to try and get, you know, more recognition in a job application. Uh, yeah, no, that's great. I, I, I think I hadn't really appreciated how much an academic career involves sort of sales. So sort of sales of yourself, of your ideas, of your ability to do something. Every grant application is kind of a sales pitch that the project is worthwhile, being invested in, and you yourself is worthwhile. When you secured your, your job as a lecturer, what did you find were the sort of the main hurdles that you initially faced? Yeah, it was shock. <laughs> it was, it, it, I, you know, I, I, I was like 15 years out of college then. And at the whole time of those 15 years, I had lived in a lab. That's all I'd done. I'd done experiments for the most part, you know. And then you get this job and you put it in an office with a computer screen and it's not, you don't work in a lab anymore. And it's like you, 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 you've done all this training for a job that actually doesn't involve what you've trained. <laughs> and so I found it really difficult. I found setting up a lab really hard because I had the luxury of being in places like Hopkins and Harvard where I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. You know, I didn't have to order anything. I would just say, we need that. There's a list on a, on a wall and it would, be, it would show up in the lab the next week. Yeah. So understanding how to get things, how to, how to set up a lab, how to, you know, all those logistics were, yeah, very, very hard. Uh, I was, when I, my first year here, I had to coordinate a 350 student module and I had never worked in the UK system before. I was here for six years, six months before I realized undergrad degrees were three years and not four years. And I was used to, <laughs> I, 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 I was really thrown in the deep end. So trial by fire doesn't half explain exactly what happened in the first few years here. Yeah. And you know, I, I have uh, some friends who have set up sort of small startup companies out of uh, doing a PhD. And I think there's a lot of similarities between being a startup and being a PI. So you get thrown in immediately into HR, mentoring, finance, safety, everything that you kind of have to deal with as a startup without any of the support. Um, and obviously, Queen's universities have all of that sort of infrastructure, but navigating that infrastructure is, from my experience, so, so difficult. Yeah, and it's so, all about getting the name of that person who's going to help you, and you don't, you yeah, know, you need yeah. to find that person. And yeah, and then, then I think for me, I, I had some fantastic mentors who sort of had been here already and sort of knew the system, knew who to navigate, who to go and ring, sort of the, the name of the person. Was that something that you had when you started sort of a, a part of the mentoring scheme? Or is that something 
Then yeah. you know, to Queens. I think they, they started that sense I've got here. I think there wasn't wasn't any very, uh, I didn't have a, a defined mentor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, I found that invaluable. It, it seems like the model that most universities have adopted now, which is great. Okay. So um, this this question is one that I've only ever seen asked of, of women and it's bad actually, because I have a 10 month old baby uh, born May, May last year. And I was completely naive to the change in my, my life personally, but also professionally as well. So the, the complete or seismic shift that you have when, when children come along, you've had, I think, two children since starting at, at Queens. Obviously that's, that's something, a consideration that's always at the back of some people's minds about starting a career. So if you followed a traditional sort of linear, uh, pattern that both of us have, the age that it happens if sometimes crosses over with when you start up your own group. So what did you find, find as sort of the main, main challenges or the sort of the main adaptations that you had to do to sort of balance home and, and work life? I was like you, I could dedicate 60 hours a week to the lab and then you, you can't do that once a baby comes Yeah, out. you can't do that. Not, I, I, it doesn't matter what career you're in, nothing prepares you for, for being a parent. I think it, it's a total shift in priorities. Yeah. So I, I started in April and I got pregnant unexpectedly by surprise in August and I was actually really embarrassed or you know nervous telling the head of school at the time that I, I i got pregnant i need to go on maternity leave and which was looking back and it was really silly but yeah so i i had my first child then in my second year and then two years later I had another child the first time around i took about six months off from maternity leave and the second time i only took three months off uh, i suffered with postnatal depression both times so it was it was it was a struggle those first few years were a really struggle and so yeah you definitely prioritize make different prior priorities and at, at that time also i was doing a lot of teaching i was getting into this role of teaching and i also had this position as swan champion which was taking up a lot of my time and so definitely my research and my lab was you know third in priority it was really low down and I, I, it's definitely, I've struggled. I've, I've definitely, there, there has been an impact on my research and on my lab based on, on my maternity disease. And I know Swan Agenda tries to mitigate against this and there were certain things put in place. And as a champion, you know, it was really great that I had input into deciding these action plans and helping people come back after maternity leave and stuff. But um, yeah, it, it, it definitely had a, an impact. Uh, right now, so now, you know, I'm so glad I don't work in America anymore. I don't know how people in America deal with this. Uh, I leave at five every day or six, five or six, and I, and most people do. And I don't, you know, there's no shame in that. And I wouldn't change it, you know, and, and I don't work weekends anymore where I used to work weekends. So you, you have to make sacrifices and, you know, I'm, I'm glad of the work-life balance that's afforded here to us in Queens. And I feel like people are supportive and people understand that I got, I got promoted last year, you know, like it didn't hinder my ability to get to the next stage of the career. So I, I, I did it. It was tough. I'm not going to lie, but yeah, but going forward, it is, I, I love what I do. I come to my office. It's my little sanctuary. I actually really like work. I don't think I would be able to do a job if I didn't like it as much as I do. I still really love science. I'm really glad I'm, I have a supportive partner that helps at home. So I, I'm lucky that he works weekends and I work during the week. So we have, you know, we have childcare all the time at home, which is, which is, you know, something that not everyone has. So it's really great that we can do that, but it does, it definitely changes your priorities. Yeah. I, I think it certainly, from my experience, gives you a very different sense of perspective. So it's something that is, so if you get sort of a, a fairly brutal peer review or a grant gets rejected or something, you go home and you see sort of a baby smile, it takes a bit of the edge off. It doesn't completely subside it, but it, it does take the edge off. So I think it's maybe finding satisfaction in different areas of, of work and, and balancing that, that work and home life. But it is possible. Like there are people here, you know, when do I plan a family? It's really hard. You, you don't, don't try to you know there's no really good time you, you'll you'll figure it out no, i know no. the postdoc is really unsure and it's really unsettling and, and you know it was it was curious that in the lab at harvard there were three male postdocs and three female all the male postdocs had children because they had wives at home that were taking care of the, the three female even though two of them were married i wasn't but they they were they didn't say no way we can't have children during this time but you figure it out it's it'll be tough it's going to be tough no matter what stage of the career you are but don't don't think you can't do it and queens especially is a lot is very supportive here anyway for, for well i think the fact that you get maternity leave is certainly a, a, a yeah. good a good thing compared to the the states, states yeah yeah <laughs> okay so that that was great um so before we move on and, and talk to us if you could go back and give yourself either as a phd student or as a, a postdoc or sort of one bit of advice what do you think that would be yeah, so I thought hard about this question and I have two answers to that. So 
you know, I was very privileged, I guess, in a way. And every time I made a decision about where to do to go next was always based on what I love to do. I didn't really factor anything else in. So where was the next cool place to do science or the cool science that I wanted to do? And I wasn't very strategic. And I, when I came here, then I started a research group in a topic that wasn't related to either one of my previous roles. I, I took it upon myself to start working on a fungal disease, which I'd never worked on fungal disease before. And that's really been challenging to get grants and to get papers published because I have no name in this field. So if you want to be an academic, you have to, you have to build a network. You have to build, uh, you have to get your name recognized because it's really, really difficult. Each one, my PhD, my postdoc, I'm starting a lab. I've, I've worked in three separate fields. I have to reestablish myself each time. There's a new set of new community I have to get maybe made aware of where, who, who's who, where are the resources, what are the questions that are being asked. I, I, I've made it more difficult for myself than I needed to be. Uh, I see people here who are running labs based on their PhD work. So they have, you know, they really continued on within the same network, the same people, and they can get grants and papers because they have name recognition. People know them. So I don't have that. And I, I've been struggling. Thankfully, now five or six years in, I feel like I'm establishing myself. And that's getting better, but try to be strategic on your research questions. Yeah, keep that in mind. And the second thing I would have told myself is don't disregard industry so quickly. <laughs> you know, I really, there, we're in this really cool time of biology research right now. This, you know, what computer science was in the 80s and 90s, I think biology is right now. There's this revolution that biology can answer a lot of the questions that are a problem in our society, climate change, all this stuff, synthetic biology. There's really cool technologies out there. And because of that, there's a load of startup companies, there's loads of really interesting companies doing exciting research that's going to make a difference. And for me, I always thought industry was either drug companies or, you know, the big bad wolf and you couldn't do proper research, but you can. There's lots of opportunities out there to do really cool science outside of academia. So explore those options and travel. Travel, you know, science is great. You can travel all over the world. It's a universal language, right? So don't stay in the one place. Gain experience elsewhere and you'll, you'll become a much better scientist, I think, as a result. That's fantastic. Well. Thank you very much, Adana, and thank you very much for that very elegant transition into uh, our next uh, guest on today. Um, thanks for joining us, Jocelyn. And um, so, Jocelyn, you're the head of research and development for mm -hmm. a company called Bath Haas. Mm -hmm. I never learned German, and I my pronunciation is, is always is always bad. So, the reason I thought it'd be great to talk to you, Jocelyn, was you were quite focused from out of your PhD that an academic career wasn't something that you were sort of keen on, on following the industry was sort of the place. So we thought it'd be a, a really nice sort of balance against sort mm -hmm. of the, the traditional sort of academic route and um, to someone who's, who's gone and, and done fantastic things um, in industry. So maybe to start off with the, the same sort of question, unless head of R&D at Bath Haas was your sort of dream job as a child, what was your sort of first memory of a, a career ambition? Um, that's actually, I found a really difficult question because I didn't really have specific career ambitions for a really long time. I was actually quite driven at school. I was really good at school. I enjoyed it and worked very hard, but never really had a specific goal in mind. So there was a phase where I thought I might want to be an interpreter, but that was just sort of because I enjoyed languages. Ended up then going to science. Mostly was people said, you're bright, you should do science. And then also did a science degree. But for a really long time, I didn't know what to do and then out of my food science degree which is why I did my undergraduate that led into food control because that particular degree is just that's the main focus there and so after I finished that undergraduate degree similar to Adele I, I wasn't really uh, ready to go back into research so I went and worked in a food control lab for, for a while because that was the easiest thing to do and it's actually there that I started inspiring some ideas so the food control lab that I worked in in Zurich um, they did food control, but they also had this group that, for historic reasons, also did quite a bit of research method development. And I thought that was really in interesting. Um, what they also did was lobbyism. I mean, it's something that most people yeah. that's a very negative term. But basically, what they did was a lot of the work they did was provide the scientific basis for legislation. And I thought that was fascinating because it's like then you can be a scientist, but you can actually make a bigger difference. You can actually inform legislation. So I thought that was really cool. So for a while, I thought I, I actually want to be a lobbyist. I don't know. Also, um, around that time, there was this film, uh, Thank You for Smoking. I don't know whether you've ever seen that, but that's about a guy who's a lobbyist. And I thought, obviously, the tobacco industry is a bit of a weird one, but that film was quite fun because it showed someone who was really passionate about what they do and really good at influencing people. And I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. So I thought I would 
develop my science a bit more and then decided to go to a degree mainly because I wanted to go to London I ended up in uh, medical science because there is a lot more medical research in London than there is food research and so I ended up in, in cancer research but then during that PhD it became very clear to me that I didn't want to do um, academic research longer term and I think there, there was there are two angles to that one is the things that Adele has already touched on that just seeing the postdocs and the pressure they were under, the, the precarity of an academic career, where for a long time you have these short-term contracts, you're just constantly worried about what you're going to do next. There's a huge amount of pressure. And then balancing that against the ambition that you have and the drive that you have. So you, I always feel like if you want to pursue an academic career, you really have to want it. No one's going to give it to you. And I just felt like I didn't want it enough to be able to be successful. And I also felt that personality-wise, I wasn't cut out for it. I think I just never had that specific passion for one subject. I never felt like I was sufficiently intrinsically motivated to, to take that forward. And so I thought I would go into an industry where I'd be able to problem solve rather than having to create or pursue a vision that I have to create myself. Okay, so um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you do uh, at Bath House as, as head of R&D or sort of maybe day-to-day and, and sort of the broader sort of scope of what you do as well? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just Bath House, what, what we do, um, I think so this is not something that people are aware of, most people are aware of as a thing. So Bath House is a hop company. So we sell hops and hop products into the brewing industry. And historically, we, the company started out as a, as a hop trader. So the company's been around for 225 years. It's still family-owned. And originally what we did was buy hops and then sell it to breweries, then increasingly buy hops, process them and sell them to breweries. And today, we also make all sorts of products from hops for breweries, mostly bittering flavoring, but we also have some other products with processing aids. So one example is that we actually make a product from hops that suppresses foaming in fermentations. And so our role in R&D is to produce those products, to develop those products. So looking at hops and thinking about what can we do with that to make breweries work easier. Um, And as the head of R&D, I manage a team of five people. So most of my job is is coordinating that research, prioritizing the research, communicating it a lot as well. So obviously as a research group within a commercial business, we have a lot of interfaces with that commercial side of things. And our research has to be driven by commercial interests as well. We're always, our ultimate aim is always to to produce something that someone ultimately can sell and will want to buy. Um, And so a lot of my role is that, is, is, helping bridge that I wouldn't say gap but certainly making forming that link between the R&D team and then the commercial side of the business. So it sounds a little bit like you've described almost a PI in academia to some extent Mm -hmm. um, but maybe with just a slightly different end focus. Um, So you you sort of have a group you have junior more senior researchers Mm -hmm. PhD um, postdocs so I think I've never really heard it described i've never worked in industry so Mm -hmm. you have described sort of an academic group but within Mm -hmm. a a more focused um, environment so i think that's great to hear and how did you find that transition from working in a an academic and then sort of navigating through into industry so the the application process in academia is the same in sort of every university but in industry did you find that it was networks or was it just you found this company and you were you applied for a job there? Um, so I'd say, I mean, the, the, the application process is, is similar if you're going into that sort of line of work because the company is looking for you based on your technical skills. I did actually find the job through a contact. So there, there was a bit of the network aspect there. Essentially, a recruiter reached out to a colleague of mine um, and she forwarded it to me. But I think in terms of the application, if you're applying for an industrial position, like I say, if it's an R&D they are looking for technical skills, but often um, it will need to be transferable skills that you need to look at or, or certain technical skills and not so much your subject matter. I think it's unlikely just because academic research tends to be so very specialized. I think the chances of you actually then working in that same field in industry are quite slim. So you really need to look at what skills do I have and where can I apply them? And this is actually really difficult. And for me, I was quite lucky that this opportunity came along. It would never have occurred to me that with what I'd done academically, I could work in the brewing industry. I just, I just, that wasn't something I was aware of. And I think this, and this, this also relates a little bit to something that Adele said. I think 
when you're still in at university in that academic context, it's really important to broaden your network and look at different opportunities. And I think it's really important to go to conferences when you can go to career fairs as well, because you just there's just a lot of things that you don't think of in terms of opportunities in industry. Um, and I think there's almost yeah. so many opportunities out there, unless you've got yeah. a way of, of narrowing the focus down, you're just going to miss opportunities. Yeah. And so, the best way, I think, to find those opportunities is just to meet people and see what they're doing. And so I think this is, event is a really great idea as well, just to bring in people that are maybe doing things that would never have occurred to you. Yeah, fantastic. So um, maybe question about sort of, well, you, you went from being sort of very sort of lab focused mm-hmm. at Bath to that more sort of strategic sort of organisational side. What was the... What did you find the sort of the main challenge going from from the sort of the, the still lab based role to the more sort of management and sort of strategic role? Yeah, I think the struggles are very similar to what Adele described. To be honest, where you're suddenly in a position that you weren't really trained for. So I'd, I'd done a chemistry degree and then worked in the control, food control lab, did a PhD. So I'd, I'd been working in a lab for eight or nine years and very focused on, on that technical aspect because that was also what I was enjoyed doing. And then all of a sudden I'm, in, I'm leaving the group and I'm still obviously leading their research and, and looking at them with their projects. But a lot of what I'm doing is, is communication with other departments, basically selling what we're doing internally to the commercial departments. There's this huge financial aspect for me as well, where I'm managing a budget. A lot of those things are something that I'm not formally trained for. So I think that comes as a bit of a shock. And so maybe one thing to consider is if you are, if you do have that type of career ambition where you where you want, whereas you're a scientist, but you want to go into a management um, position, regardless of whether that's an academia or industry, is don't underestimate the challenge of that. Because the, the, the finance thing is, is so far away from what we do in science. It's, I think it, it's good to look at that early. And I think most universities do offer some general skills courses, and I wouldn't end underestimate the importance of those. If you have those um, offers, do take the university up on that to use those opportunities. So now that you're on the sort of the other side in, in industry, um, uh, I definitely don't mean that sort of the, <laughs> the sort of the, the dark side as well, but now that you're sort of looking to recruit people potentially mm-hmm. from, from academia, um, either from undergraduate or PhD or, or postdoc, you mentioned that it wasn't really the specific technical mm-hmm. skills that you're interested in. What is it that you're sort of really on the lookout for sort of a potential new new employee? Yeah. So in R&D, certainly the, the technical skills form the basis of what we're looking for. But I, I have actually hired two people in the last six months and seen quite a few CVs. And one of the things that I feel is important in industry is a certain breadth of experience as well so i personally I, I, I think this is true for a lot of industrial jobs is i actually quite like people who don't have a completely linear academic trajectory um, and i don't want to dispirit anyone who does have that but it's just that it can actually be useful if people have some other experience so just seeing people who maybe have taken a year out and done something else or done a bit of work or even worked alongside what their academic progression that is actually advantageous because um, for one thing, it does show a certain amount of, of motivation, even if you, alongside your master's, you did some teaching jobs, that kind of thing. But also it just, those people who've done that tend to have a slightly broader perspective of things and often will bring some skills that, that you don't get directly out of an academic degree. Do, do you find those people are maybe better equipped to that sort of change in, in focus in, in a business where there, there is a different sort of end Mm-hmm. And product that you're interested in. So if they've worked in a business before, they know that it's not always necessarily about the, the next publication, but about the next the next product or, or something like that. Yeah. And like I say, even small things that you've done, like if people have worked in customer service jobs or even waitressing alongside, there's there's a certain mindset that comes with that, for example, a certain customer focus that you just don't have when you're working in academia. You're actually providing a service. And I think a lot of the time, or most of the time when you're working in industry, you are providing a service to other departments or to a customer. And I think that's a, that's a mindset that you don't necessarily get in academia. So I suppose one of the, the main draws for people to stay in, in academia is this sort of idea that we have more freedom to pursue our own research interests. And mm-hmm. I think that's true to an extent. But if you're sort of lab-based and you require money for consumables, staff, equipment, you can only really pursue the research that people give you money. Industry or research councils give you money to be able to pursue it. How do you find that balanced in in industry? You talked about having you were really interested in the ability to sort of develop your own ideas, and that's mm-hmm. what sort of 
push you to sort of go down the PhD route. How do you find that in, in industry? Do you have that same level of sort of intellectual freedom to come up with problems and solutions or is it a little bit more sort of top down? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say more top down, certainly not at a detail level, but there obviously is the, the commercial aspect, the commercial driver. There needs to be a practical application for what you're doing and, and certain things will be interesting or even fascinating from an intellectual level, but just not that useful at the end of the day. So I think that the big difference is that you always, there always needs to be someone always, it always needs to be useful to someone at the end of the day, you always need to be saying, I'm doing this because it will solve this problem for this person or this customer group. Um, and that to an extent that is, that is limiting. There are certain things that are just interesting for the sake of being interesting, but there's no necessary practical application. But for me personally, that was also, that's also one of the things that I like about what we do is that it's a little bit more tangible. When I, when we produce a new, when we develop a new product, I can actually see how that makes a difference. I can actually see how that makes someone's life easier, how it solves a problem that someone has had, which maybe you don't necessarily have in academic research, particularly when it's basic research, where you're looking at a very specialized biological problem that it's probably part of a greater problem. And ultimately, most in most research grants, you will relate that back to something very specific. But you as an academic researcher, quite far removed from that and working in industrial r and I'm quite close to that. We actually do work with customers. We do customer trials. I'll actually go to a brewery. We'll put the product in the beer and then I can see what the beer tastes like. And I like that, that tangibility of it as well. But yes, there is that aspect of return on investment. Ultimately, what the products we make need to make money at the end of the day. So that's, that is that limitation. Yeah, and I, I think there, it sounds like there's a lot of crossover between academic university focused research where we have a lot of sort of blue sky research mm -hmm. where there is no practical or immediately obvious practical outcome but then a lot of my work is also very applications focused, mm -hmm. working with industry um, to sort of solve a problem using maybe the freedom that we have in, a, in academia and how we approach the problem a little bit more so it, it sounds like what you do in industry there's a lot of crossover between what we do in academia where it's applications focused mm -hmm. Research. So maybe people who are working in, in that area would find transition into industry a little less alien uh, to what okay. they, they used to in, in university. Yeah. So, well, definitely. Uh, and also when I was doing my PhD, I, I did an applications project working quite closely with industry and that, that definitely does make it easier. But I think even people who are doing blue skies research, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel discouraged that you feel that you don't have any relevant skills. Like I say, a lot of what you do technically is transferable to other areas. It's just, it takes a slightly different mindset. Yeah. Okay. So you, you find that there still is this freedom in, in academia, maybe a slightly more focused mm -hmm. area that you can obviously yeah. imagine you, you can't go away and develop a new, something completely unrelated to hops in, in your spare time. So that, that there is a, a restriction to some extent, but mm -hmm. like, there is well, it depends on how well I sell it as well. If I can convince my company that this is something they absolutely need and should do, I, there is a certain level of freedom, but yeah, okay. there, are, there are probably boundaries. Okay, so did that, did that come as a bit of a surprise to you when you went into industry that there was that level of freedom or? Yeah, I, I yes, definitely. I, I definitely would have imagined that it would be very much, very much more linear and very much sort of conveyor belt, like where you, you're developing something and this is just, you, this is what you're trying to do, you do it and then the product comes out at the end. But there is a lot more creativity to it than I maybe dared hope initially. Yeah. So do you do much work with um, universities at all? Do you have any sort of research projects that, that cross between Bath House and, and universities? Yeah, we do. Um, so we, we have regular research projects and actually often we will use those connections when we want to go off on or we want to investigate something a little bit more depth that we don't necessarily have the resources for. So when, we, when we're developing something and we observe something where we maybe don't quite understand why something is working the way it is or why it isn't working then we will often collaborate with universities who can then look at it a little bit more deeply from a scientific angle we have in the past also sponsored phds again when we're looking at want to look at something a bit more in depth and we just don't have the resources to do that so we we work with with um research groups that, that have just have the background and the infrastructure okay so for that sort of very higher risk mm -hmm. long term impact is, is what not outsourcing, but sort of yeah. 
And equally, to... we have also occasionally do have universities come to us where they've discovered something that they think might be potentially interesting and commercially viable, but they just don't, they, again, they don't have the infrastructure to commercialize something. So we have one example where the University of Nottingham came up with something and they said, we think this is patentable. Are you interested? Um, and that became a collaboration. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the key, that it's, mm -hmm. it's collaboration. I, I think where it's sort of contract research work, where industry pays universities to do certain things, or sort of the other way around is less enjoyable for everyone. And I, I think the people I've worked with in industry on a collaboration basis have just as much sort of intellectual freedom and curiosity as anyone I've ever collaborated with inside university so it sounds like something that if people are scared about losing that freedom doesn't sound like that is a case at least for you it's yeah. a slightly more focused um outcome yeah same for Adele. if you could go back and give yourself one bit of advice as a phd student what what do you think it would be i think i i, I agree with adele that one really important point is to use build your network and use your network because you just have one single perspective and there are a lot more perspectives out there. And it's really important to get those. There are lots of opportunities. And if you, if, and a lot of them you will find coincidentally. So if you don't put yourself out, you won't see those. And I think academia is a unique environment as well that gives you a lot more opportunities than you have later on. And you don't really realize that until afterwards. So when you start at a company, you do find that it's different. I think when you're working at university, you don't appreciate just how unusual and privileged you are with the, being surrounded by like-minded, really clever people who are all doing really interesting stuff. And then when you go into industry, usually when, particularly if it's a smaller business, that'll narrow down quite a lot. So I feel like really use those opportunities you have at university. And also what I said earlier, do go a little bit outside of your field. Make sure you do some general skill stuff, um, but also maybe look into some other areas. Maybe look at collaboration with other departments at the university, because it'll it'll broaden your horizon, but also return some opportunities you would have missed otherwise. Yeah, and I think some of the, my most exciting research has come out of random encounters with mm -hmm. people in, in corridors or over coffee or sort of in a queue at a conference waiting for a free coffee from an industry Mm -hmm. or, or something like that okay well that was great so yeah thanks a lot justin i, I think i've given people a really good sort of idea of, of what industry can can involve and this sort mm -hmm. of the fact that you can pursue a sort of a pseudo academic life outside of academia i think is is good for mm -hmm. so maybe adal if you could come back in and and join us and there's i think a couple of questions that would be quite useful to discuss between the two of you so i think one that's that's come up is about work-life balance so have you found, Jocelyn, in industry that work-life balance is given quite a lot of attention or is it something that the expectation is that there's a deadline that you work all you can to meet that deadline? Um, my feeling, my experience from this is that the difference between academia and um, industry here is actually not as great as the cultural difference um, from one country to another or depending really on the specific institution. So I'm really fortunate that the company that I work for, which is a German company, but also has subsidiary in the UK, are very good with this. So our working hours are very flexible, um, with very generous arrangements for parents as well. Um, and people are very conscious of, of that. And there are a lot of universities, I think, in, um, in Europe that, are, that, that offer that as well. But we do also, part of our company is in the US as well. And I think for them, for a US company, they're quite good, but you can certainly see that the US working culture is very different. There is a certain uh, expectation of presenteeism where people just work longer hours, mainly because they're expected to work longer hours. They seem to have less boundaries about when they send emails or call people. So you will occasionally get emails at the weekend or calls late in the night. So I think it, that depends. I, I don't feel like I can speak for industry as a whole, but I think that's really very different depending on the institution that you're at, the cultural difference between countries. And I think here in Europe, we're very fortunate in that that is a much larger focus than other parts of the world, to be honest. Yeah, I think I remember working with a company based in the States and they, they came over to spend a bit of time with us. And over uh, coffee, we were talking about sort of upcoming holidays. Mm -hmm. And he, it took me about 10 minutes to explain that we get 25 days paid leave a year. Mm -hmm. and he was like, but when you start our company, I think you get three. So yeah, I think that that cultural change is maybe starker than the difference between academia and and, um, and industry. But now you sort of touched on work life balance. That you sort of you leave at five and six and you don't work at the the weekend. Would you say that that's 
starker between the, the US culture and the, the sort of UK culture or? I, I, yeah, I think it's a country-based, culture-based, yeah, phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I agree, yeah. So I th- maybe a question I had in, in my mind was, it seems like Adele, you're talking about setting up your own PI group was very much about finding your niche in research, something that you could go and um, sell yourself. But when Jocelyn was talking about industry, it was very much more about depth of sort of and breadth of um, understanding. Do, do you think that's maybe one of the differences between academia and, and industry? That academia is about narrowing focus onto something that you can you can focus on and develop a name on. But with industry, it's much more about your your breadth of experiences. I think the students and the people on the ground are very, very focused on a very tiny little aspect. But I think as a PI, you have to keep in mind the broader applications of all this all the time. And, you know, grant applications definitely put this in, into your forefront of your mind. I always worked in a place where, I, you know, money wasn't an, an issue. So I did, we didn't have to worry about We did all the research I did in America was all blue skies, right? It was all not very obviously translatable to any kind of product or anything. Um, and that was the way it worked there. Back now, when I'm here trying to get money from grants, I am way more focused on how do I get money in and what the granting agency wants. So I'm always thinking about applications of my research. I'm interested, I never really mentioned what I was interested in. I really am curious about evolution and evolution is totally blue skies, right? And so I can sell that. I can sell that to only very few funding agencies. But that has led me down the path of now developing antifungal drugs, and that's way more applicable. So I, I've started to interact with pharmaceuticals and, and industry like that. So you, you don't lose sight of it. You can't lose sight of it. There's no way you can run your lab if you, if you just keep on being very self-focused, narrow-focused. And you have to be open-minded because science takes you in directions you never know where it's going to go, right? And so you have to be open-minded to go and, and, and explore new territories, make new collaborations. Uh, and that, that's really fun. Yeah. I think from my experience, that niche is what kind of gets you in the door, but then to expand beyond that is what you need to sort of keep your research developing. Yeah. Um, so, Justin, do you, do you find that sort of breadth of research or breadth of experience is, is more important for you in industry? Um, yeah, I think breadth of experience and then also just practical experience in a commercial setting does help. And like I say, even if that means that you've worked in a bookshop for a while, which is something I did when I was at university, all, all of those sort of things, I think, help give you a perspective of what's expected in a, in a, in a commercial company. Okay, so um, I think as tradition for some of, some of the times I teach, I've gone over time, so um, we should probably uh, uh, cut it there. So thank you both again, Jocelyn and, and Adele, and uh, thank you everyone who's joined us in this, this live recording. That's it for this episode. Sounds like academia and industry aren't so different after all. I hope you enjoyed this and please subscribe to the podcast or visit our page for more content with go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye.